0: Well, repentance, um, which is our theme this morning, is complicated. Um, I learned this, uh, gosh, I was about three or four years old, and I broke my dad's fire truck model, which was a prized possession of him. And I realized then that being sorry does not fix it. I had siblings, and with them, I realized that apologies can be fake or manipulative or self justifying. I'm sorry you weren't smart enough to understand my clear directions, for example. I started dating, and, and uh, I missed birthday, birthday celebrations, and I realized that saying sorry can make it worse, because not only are you clueless, but you're also pathetic. I'm still learning about repentance. Repentance is complicated because sin is very complicated. We're all sinned against, This is very popular today, Uh, but we all sin. All of us sin, and this is not so popular today, but that's for another sermon. David is our example of repentance this morning, and he's complicated. David committed big sins, and for him, this is an existential problem. If you have your Bibles, please turn uh, with me to Psalm 51. David committed murder and profound sexual abuse. And it could have been the end of him, frankly. David, if you know the story, uh, is the powerful king in Israel. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, But he was in the wrong frame of mind and uh, when he should have been together with his men on the field of battle, he was hanging back in the palace and uh, that's when he spied Bathsheba, and he used power and manipulation and created horrible abuse with her, and she became pregnant, and his solution was to murder her husband, Uriah. Nathan is a wise, profoundly wise, fearless, courageous prophet who tells a parable to David as a way of helping usher into him repentance and says to David, thou art the man, if you recall that famous phrase. David repents. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And the Lord says, I have put away your sin. But there are consequences. The baby dies. David's house is in perpetual turmoil. The kingdom is eventually split. It's powerful stuff. David has to face all this as a person. David cannot bring Uriah back from the dead. David cannot save the baby. He cannot undo his violation of Bathsheba. He cannot fix his kingdom. He cannot fix his relationship with God. Sorry doesn't help. David is plunging into the dilemma that has faced human nature from the beginning, which is justice or mercy, or justice and mercy. If God forgives David, it seems unjust to others. If I were Uriah's dad, or if Bathsheba was my daughter, I would probably hate Psalm 51. If God doesn't forgive David, on what grounds can anyone be forgiven? You see how stuck we are? We are stuck. This is why in our Anglican liturgy we pray, the burden of our transgressions is more than we can bear. It's not so much an emotional or sentimental statement, it's objective. We're plunged into a predicament that we have no way out of, but we can't stay stuck. Otherwise, we'll never really recover. It's not God's will that we stay stuck. We are meant to, believe it or not, experience joy, even David. It could have been and it would have been just for God to remove David from the scene in every way, but he did not. And here we have an intimate record of David's prayer. David's prayer, of course, is rich in so many ways, and we won't try to work through all of it this morning, Um, but I want to highlight a couple of key themes. First of all, Psalm 51 helps us find our way through this. When we've committed sin, and we begin to resonate with the dynamics of that, which we'll explore in a minute, we need help. Sin is too complicated for us to figure out or to solve. So every encounter with this is going to be a personal one, and David's uh, prayer is deeply personal, and yet it's also deeply thoughtful. It is a written poem. It's shaped primarily by David's formation in the sacrificial worship process of Israel, the sacrificial worship experience of Torah. So we're going to see how Torah is fundamentally good and David could not possibly have found his way through the dilemma of his own sin without recourse to Torah, without having been shaped by it, which taught him that forgiveness was in fact a real possibility. I mean, it could very easily have been that David would not have thought of that that forgiveness was a possibility. Yet, David's prayer, although it is personal, is also inherently communal. It's a composition fit for use in Israel's worship. Believe it or not, he submits this to the choir master. Not my first impulse when I pray such an intimate prayer over such horrible things. David is a public figure and he prays With his people. That's important. Now we'll see as we move forward that David turns to God first. That's a little sticky, and we're going to get back to that question. Uh, That's why I want to make note of it. David turns to God first. David knows where to turn first. God is the first source, then others. Now, this is shaped deeply by Israel's covenant experience. You can see the word here, chesed. I need two podiums. Um, Have chesed on me. Uh, You may be familiar with that Hebrew word. In fact, I saw a bumper sticker not long ago that said, uh, be blessed, show chesed. So if it goes on a bumper sticker, there must be enough people that understand that word. Chesed is often translated as love, steadfast love, loyalty. Um, It's really a covenant word, and here's what I mean by that. It's meant to show that the nature of God's relationship with Israel expressed through this concept of covenant, I'm making a covenant with you, you're making a covenant with me, it's like the glue word. The thing that holds that covenant together is God's chesed, covenant loyalty, steadfast love. It's a very profound and rich and deep word. God elected Israel to be his, their chosen people. The foundation of that is grace, meaning it's not because of Israel's uh, uh, superior nature among other peoples. It's simply an expression of God's profound love that he elected Israel. That's their story. That's the story that's, shaping Israel all the time in their worship and in their festivals. They're telling this to each other constantly. Within that covenantal framework is the heart of the tabernacle where these sacrifices occur. It's where atonement happens. The relationship between God and Israel is the result of a severed relationship between Adam and Eve and God standing as representatives of all people. In other words, there's a problem in the relationship. And God's covenant with Israel is a step in the direction of curing that problem. And in the heart of that is the requirement for atonement that makes reconciliation possible. God provides atonement for the broken relationship. This is important because it's hard to reconcile justice and mercy. Somehow, the worth of Uriah and the worth of Bathsheba have to be upheld. Somewhere along the course of moral confidence, they have to be attended to. David has to pay for what he did. Otherwise, it's equal to saying that Uriah's life didn't really matter and Bathsheba's life didn't really matter, okay? The sacrificial system is beginning to shape Israel's consciousness that because there is worth, because there's value, there has to be cost, and that cost has to be borne. Otherwise, there's no moral justice, and that cost is beginning to be felt by Israel, as day after day and year after year, they bring their sacrifices of atonement to the temple. They lay their hands on the animal, and that animal is slaughtered vicariously, and then a meal is shared to demonstrate reconciliation between the offender and God. Day after day, year after year, this expression of chesed is experienced and felt in Israel's worship. This is what is forming David's prayer. It's why he chooses the words that he does. It's why he can believe that the possibility of forgiveness even exists. David's prayer is shaped by tabernacle worship. He's talking about blotting out, washing, cleansing, hyssop. These are all sacrificial expressions that he has felt with his hands he's smelt with his nose, he's seen with his eyes, he's tasted with his tongue, he's shared in communion and fellowship with God and with other people. David stood at the altar, he laid his hands on the sacrifice, he smelled the incense, he tasted the meat, he felt the waters of purification. Had this not shaped him, he would have been incapable of knowing what to say or do in the very moment of probably the worst existential crisis of his life. He would have been incapable. Brothers and sisters, let us take care of what shapes our minds and our hearts and our imaginations and our feelings. Otherwise, we will not know what to do in the worst moments of our existential crises. Very important. Moving forward now in verses three and, and through six, here we see that David feels shame. David feels shame. Shame is appropriate in this circumstance. It's shame in general can be described this way, it's the result of seeing clearly that someone is not glad to be with us. In human development, this happens when a toddler begins to experience self-awareness. When they start to experience self-awareness, that happens when they're seeing other people seeing them. And when they're seeing in the eyes of their people that they're not glad to be with me, that creates a sense of shame. Now David should have felt shame. And you can see that it's the result of seeing clearly that they're not glad to be with me. Before his shame, Bathsheba and Uriah were simply objects and tools to manipulate. He was seeing them, but he was blind. What he was seeing weren't people, but tools and problems. But now he knows. Now he sees. Now he knows that he is seen, and his sin is ever-present, he says. He feels shame, as he should. Now he feels that God and other people are not glad to be with them. True repentance requires emotional engagement we have to feel shame in this way that we have harmed other people the reason why I say we have to feel it is because everything in us wants to not feel that shame is one of the worst things that we can experience but we have to feel otherwise we can't fully repent here's how the Reformation theologian John Calvin puts it, and it's quite vigorous language. He says we must institute a rigid and formidable scrutiny into the character of our transgressions. Now that can seem like a real downer, but just hang on a second. David does not simply say that he will confess his sins to man, but he declares that he has a deep inward feeling of them such a feeling of them as he is filled with the keenest anguish. We're going to explore why that's so important in a moment, but just to say that we have to be able to do that, and that's hard to do, and often we can't do that alone, but you can see that this is what God values. In verse 17, at the very end of Psalm 51, David says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's a heart, feeling, shame. Why is this sort of emotional engagement with shame an important factor in repentance? Because otherwise, we will revert to what's most natural for us, which was we will focus on our urge to save ourselves by self-justifying. We so want to avoid the feeling of shame that we will do anything to save ourselves and justify ourselves. David does not attempt to self-justify in order to save himself. That's amazing. That's why he's saying, I know my transgressions. He does not self-justify, and that's why he goes on in verse four to say against you and you only have I sinned. Now, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba, didn't he sin against them? Why is he seeming to kind of, is David just kind of pushing them out of the picture? No. Actually, what he's saying, what, another way that you could translate this, this verse is against you, especially you, have I sinned. In other words, in David's position, it would have been very easily to manipulate and find an agreeable answer. There were plenty of people around David that would have been very happy to excuse uh, and self-justify him in order to curry favor with him. He's the king. Others were very afraid to tell the truth. No one in the country, probably, but Nathan had enough courage to approach a person that could take your life. David addresses God because in his position, God alone would give him the objective picture. God alone would be the one who could thoroughly judge him. Before God, he could not justify himself. And David sets here an example of countering the urge to self-justify. He shows that he is without excuse to any factor of his birth, his qualifications, his outward appearances, his power, his attributes. He acknowledges that what God is really looking for relies in his heart. And that's where the problem is. You teach me wisdom, he says, in the secret heart. David knows, as we move forward here in verses 7 through 12, that what he needs, he cannot secure. The removal of shame, he cannot secure. The restoration of the face of God is beyond his control. The creation of a new heart is not something that he can enact. And yet, these are all the sources of joy. We find joy when someone's glad to be with us. We find joy when we're clean and pure. David needs it, but he cannot secure it. God, however, can secure it. The sacramental worship of Israel showed David that sin has consequences that require justice. Yet if that justice were carried out, we would all be punished. Atonement was secured through the vicarious death of another. And even David knew that that sacrificial, sacramental worship of Israel was a unique symbol of something greater still. And that's why he says at the very end of the chapter, um, or in verse 16, you will do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. David David is saying that, that although the sacrificial system is what shaped me and formed me, there's something even more. It has to do with my heart. That's the shape of the gospel. When we peer that deeply into the abyss of our own need, which we feel acutely in moments of shame, we would not be able to bear it if the one who looks back at us We're not God himself, the only one who can solve the mysteries of sin and justice and mercy altogether. Paul describes it this way. Let light shine out of darkness. The light has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ, the face that now looks at us. John describes it this way, my my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. An advocate is one who stands with us, who's actually glad to be with us in the moment where we require that kind of self-defense. We don't have the prayer of Uriah's dad or Bathsheba's mom. God will know what to say to them. We know that Paul says Jesus was put forward as an offering of atonement so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can attend to everything. But the subject this morning is David and his honesty before God and others. David felt shame deeply. He longed for the sight of God's face again. He did not justify himself because only God has the right to justify us. And he knew that he needed a rebirth. That is what God has given us in Jesus Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you have, through him, what David longed for in faith. A new heart, a new spirit, a new identity. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have God's face shining upon you. You have an advocate that stands with you even in the bottom of the pit. Sin and repentance are complex. It's in condition of our human nature. It's experience we have of sinning and being sinned against. It occurs on a very small scale every day and on a grand scale with these kinds of existential moments no matter God is able to handle it all we were never meant to. All we were meant to have is a genuine contrition, and that's sometimes hard enough. If you're here this morning with a burden of unforgiven sin, the worship of this church is intended to give you a framework for expressing it, for receiving forgiveness, and for experiencing joy. Sometimes we need a little more help. Remember, David prays with his people. Please know that Steve and I are here to help you through that process as brothers in Christ and ministers in his church, and there are other brothers and sisters here who are able to walk with you on that pathway of seeing God's face again. Please reach out to us. In the meantime, know this, that Jesus pursues broken-hearted people. It was Jesus who went to the one that was lost and to the coin. Those are repentant sinners. And God's pursuit is meant to show that his chesed love, his gluey, sticky advocacy and and commitment to you is never, ever failing, even if you're as bad as David. And in many ways, we're not that different. But we are loved. O Lord, open our lips, and our mouth will declare your praise. You are just and the justifier of those who put their trust in you, amen.